thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. It is very important that we know the God we worship. It is also imperative that we discern how God defines himself in his word. If we do not take the time to know our God, we will never know ourselves. We might think we can never know God. When we really think about God, we can see some apparent tension. How can we say, for instance, that God is simple on the one hand, but also incomprehensible? How can we say that God is separate, but also personal at the same time? These are just some of the instances. Please join us as we seek to answer these questions and many more, and remind ourselves that we are the creatures, and He is the great Creator King. In the reading of the Belgic Confession, we finished looking at the means of grace and the Word of God and the significance of those things, and the canon of Scripture being self-attesting from uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. And so as we continue on and we uh, follow the intention of what we are to do in a catechetical service, uh, is to continue in our instruction of doctrine and uh, make sure that we're always familiar and know what our confessions are teaching, that we uh, truly uh, learn these things and desire to have these things become part of who we are. And so one of the things when we look at the doctrine of God and, and we begin with our study of theology and where the Belgic Confession begins is that it's important for us to understand who God is and who we are. If we don't understand this, there's always a temptation we can have to make God in our image, right? Where we want to bring him down and recast him. Um, we may not say it's necessarily idolatry, but that's ultimately what it becomes when we start forming God in our image. The other thing is, if we don't understand who we are as creatures created in God's image, uh, we truly don't have that humility of coming before the Lord. I mean, we're, we're not going to be in awe of him. We're not going to understand who he is as God. And we're not going to understand our place as creatures. And so as we begin with the Belgic Confession, we're going to be looking at what we mean when we mention Reformed theology that God is simple and God is spirit. Uh, because sometimes we, we read this language in a Belgic and we might wonder, what, what does it mean that God's simple? We think about God being a trinity, three persons, one God. And we think about God and, and his redemption. We think about Christ taking on the flesh this time of year. And we can say there really isn't anything about God that seems all that simple in the sense that it's easy to understand him. He's, he's rather complex and awesome uh, using scriptural language. And so what does a Belgic mean? Is it minimizing the significance of God in saying this? When we talk about God being simple and spirit. And so what does this mean? Well, we're going to divide this into a real simple way of dividing it. We're going to talk about the Lord being spirit and the Lord being simple. And so as we look at this narrative, first uh, we look at the Lord being spirit. Now again, this is something that doesn't surprise us when we think about God being a spirit, we know God doesn't have a body. We know that God is one um, God. He is distinct. He is not created. God is from all eternity. Uh, and so that reality doesn't surprise us. We can certainly understand that he is uh, the embodiment of his attributes. He, he is awesome. He is 
a God who is truly holy, a God who is distinct from his creation, right? He's, he's not a God who's dependent on the creation, but the creation is dependent upon him. And so as we start thinking about this, it might be helpful for us to look at Christ interacting with this woman at the well. We notice this scene that's, that's set with Christ going out and, and meeting uh, with this woman at the well. And the scene that's set here as he meets with this woman, it's about noon in the afternoon, and it's obviously a, a time when uh, you're in the midst of the heat, the heat of the day. Uh, the setting of the well, we, we would think of the setting of the well when, when we look at some of these wells, that basically you would have a, a stone about five feet across, it would have a hole cut in the middle, uh, most likely about 18 to 20 inches uh, high. And the purpose of, of such a stone is to keep the, the dust from blowing into the well, but it's also to prevent the tragedy of children falling into the well, uh, and obviously you, you don't want that to happen. But the, the hole would be big enough that somebody would be able to take a, a bucket, and from what we can tell, it's basically a leather bucket where it would have... Um, uh, basically sticks that would cross in the mouth of the bucket so you would lower the bucket down the mouth would be held open you drop it into the water as you scoop up the water you're able to fill the bucket and get your water from the well now the reason why Christ is traveling as we find in John chapter 3 is that there are Pharisees who have basically sent individuals to investigate Christ and John so there's a bit of jealousy that we find here, that they're hearing that Christ is actually gaining a following. And as the Pharisees are, are doing this investigation, they're, they're not doing this to adjust their theology, right? I mean, it's not necessarily bad to study the scriptures and investigate Christ and, and wonder who he really is and, and to really wrestle with Christ if you're desiring to be taught by Christ and taught by the living God and, and instructed and have your mind and heart informed by these things. But that's not what they're doing. They're doing this because they want to discredit Christ. They, they, they want to show he's a fraud. And so there's nothing in their mind, nothing in their heart that wants to be instructed or submit to him. They're truly trying to, to destroy him in any way that they can. Already here in the gospel story, they're suspicious enough that they do not want to follow uh, this guy named Jesus. And as we think about the, the setting of this well, and, and we notice that as, as Christ is here traveling, trying to get away uh, from the Pharisees, we, we know that not all of these Pharisees are necessarily bad guys. Because in John 3, Christ has interacted with the Pharisee Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus comes out under the veil of darkness, trying to learn about who this Christ is and, and what this Christ guy means and, and what, what's going on. And, and Christ lays out to him that he needs this new birth, he needs to be born from above. And this is puzzling to Nicodemus because he's, he's a Jew. He's of the right lineage. What, what do you mean I need to be born again? I, I have the proper credentials. But nevertheless, we find that there is a Pharisee who does want to learn about Christ and not just destroy him. So again, we're, we're finding in the ministry of Christ uh, that it's not that, that all individuals hate him, so we immediately discredit him. Uh, but we certainly find that, that Christ is one 
who is not going with what the Pharisees would expect of Christ and embrace him. Now this becomes even more evident when we find Christ at the well. Now there's some commentators that go into history and say that uh, for a rabbi to come into Samaria, uh, a true rabbi, they would go around Samaria. Others say no, they would travel through Samaria, but there would be certain cultural conditions that would be placed upon them. So for instance, if a rabbi was going through Samaria or a priest is traveling through Samaria and maybe they're hungry and they need some food, then one of the Samaritans would be kind enough to give them a piece of fruit or, or maybe some nuts or, or something that they may have. That what the, the priest would do or someone who's a pure Jew, they would have their own ceremonial knife. They would uh, basically cut the skin or the outside of the fruit off the fruit uh, most likely if it had a peel or didn't have a peel, they, they would cut the outside that may have touched the Samaritan or touched the plate. And then they would consume what was pure and not stained by a Samaritan. And so it's important one to have this as a backdrop that a rabbi would look down on a Samaritan in such a way that even in a moment of, of potential starvation, maybe not to that extreme, but certainly of hunger, that they would go through the, the actual hassle of cutting away anything that may be unclean because they don't want the outward things to defile who they are. So that's one way to understand the rabbis going through Samaria. Another reality of this is that the rabbis would not talk to a woman. So this is something that's, that's radical. Because here's Christ at the well interacting with a woman. Now, she understands she has two strikes against her. She is a Samaritan and she is a woman. So when Christ is here at the well, this is something already pretty radical. Because we also know that there's something problematic with this woman if we understand this particular context. You see, a, a woman in this context would go out most likely around sunset or maybe in the morning and they travel with other women to get uh, water for the village or for their house, whatever they, they may need to get water for. And as they travel with the group, they would do that because these buckets, as they're lifting the buckets and carrying the jars of water, that's heavy. They, they would want assistance. What is more, they would just be for safety as well because, again, you, you don't know who's around the well. You don't know if it's safe. And so if you travel in a group, it's, it's safer. So this woman traveling on her own at noon around lunchtime is indicating there, there's a problem with this woman. That there's something about the community that is not embracing this woman. Now, now we find out the problem and, and you know, her issue or quote unquote what we would say is her issue. But at this point we, we don't know what, what the issue is. We just know that she's traveling alone. Christ is at the well and this is not something that we would say would, would be normal. And so as Christ is here at, at the sixth hour at noon, something else is strange because normally people who would travel through these areas would have their own buckets, right? Because as I mentioned, a leather bucket with the little sticks that would basically fit over the mouth of the bucket, you could collapse it and you could take it with you. And so you would expect that a traveler would have this very item with them. 
And so Christ not having this, we can say, well, maybe Christ is absent-minded, or maybe Christ was too busy, or he forgot to ask his disciples. Well, we could think that, but the reality is maybe Christ is teaching us something else about himself and the kingdom. And so as Christ interacts with this woman traveling through Samaria, as Christ she would know, or at least somehow as Christ presents himself, she recognizes that, you know, he's a teacher, he's someone uh, that's not just some sort of common individual. And as he interacts with her, and as he asks for a drink, you see, this is strange. Remember what I said about the ceremonial knife and cutting off the outside of the fruit? How are you going to take the outside of the water and not consume the corrupted part of the water, right? That, that's impossible. And you're not even using your own bucket. You're, you're using the bucket she provides, which means either she's going to hand it to him so he draws his own water, or uh, she's the one that's going to draw it for him. And so n however you look at that, this bucket is contaminated. So for Christ to drink from this bucket is already this breach of uh, culture where one would not expect this to happen. How, how can this man who claims to be pure and be a pure Jew, as she knows he's a Jew, drink from this bucket and, and take water from this woman who's a Samaritan? Well, as Christ interacts with her, they start talking. And Christ talks about the living water. Now, as we hear this living water, we can think of Nicodemus and how Nicodemus is puzzled by being born again and what all this means and being born from above and, and the symbolism of baptism and what's going on, where we think of the passage into death and emerging triumphant. But as he interacts with her, she also is missing the significance of it, isn't it? I mean, she's thinking, wow, can... Can you imagine not coming out to this well to get water? Can you imagine being in a culture where it can get hot and, and, and not needing to come out to this well and get water? And, and the implication that we don't have answered at this point is somehow she's an outcast of her community because she's not with the other women. So this is something that's rather difficult for her coming out on her own getting her own water, and, and trying to figure out how to eke out life. And so to hear of living water, what a blessing. But she's not understanding what Christ is saying to her. Because Christ wants her to understand there's something more about this water, something more that's going on. It's not just the water that's in the earth. It's not just water that quenches physical thirst. But it's more of the true water. We think of the water of life throwing, or flowing through the temple in Ezekiel 47 and how it's in abundance, having that picture of the river of life in that reality. And so as, as she hears this, she's not making the immediate connection. But Christ is one who says, well, why don't you go and, and get your husband? Well, she points out that she doesn't have a husband. And Christ then lays out and says, yeah, that's right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with right now is not your husband. Pretty specific, right? This is a stranger at the well. She comes out to the well. How does he know this? And so she reasons that Christ is a prophet. 
And so as she realizes he's a prophet, this is something that, that to me, I, I marvel at again. I mean, if, if you meet a stranger and he starts airing your, your dirty laundry, you think you would change the subject, right? I mean, you kind of be like, I don't know if we want all this stuff out here. But nevertheless, she's like, wow, you're a prophet. <laughs> and, and she's like, I got to tell people about you, which tells us something about how Christ interacted with her, doesn't it? You see, we think that maybe Christ is bringing this maybe to, to bring her to a place uh, of showing that she's really an inferior, dirty individual and not one who's worthy to interact with a rabbi. But how she interacts with Christ, she's not reacting this way. She's marveling. She, she wants to know. She, she wants to learn more about who Christ is. And so Christ then goes on to tell her about worshiping in Jerusalem and worshiping on this mountain. Now, we have this interaction with her where as she's setting up to this, she's talking about worshiping and, and she's one that's talking about worshiping on the mountain and Christ is saying that they're not really worshiping what they know. So the implication of this, it could be some sort of idolatry, some sort of a, a blended worship. Uh, whatever the case, what, what's going on is that she does affirm in verse 25 something significant. She affirms there is a Christ. There, there is a Messiah. There is one to whom she looks. And so when we hear this and Christ interacts with her with this worship, he's reminding her of the reality of who he is or, or reminding her or she's looking to the reality of the Messiah and to the Christ. But Christ tells her who God is in verse 24. God is spirit. And this is what the Belgian Confession is driving home and what we're leading up to. Because it's so tempting, you see, with Nicodemus, with this woman at the well, thinking that God is, is basically kind of like a commodity, right? God's in the temple. God's in Jerusalem. God's uh, on the top of a mountain. God's in a place where, where we encounter him by our own definition of encountering God. And what Christ is saying is, listen, God is bigger than we comprehend. Certainly the temple was filled with his glory. Certainly the tabernacle was filled with his glory. I'm not limiting or devaluing the significance of God being in the midst of his people in the wilderness sojourn. But the thing we have to understand is while God fills the temple with his glory, he's not limited to the temple. He's not limited to Jerusalem. This is part of what the Lord teaches his people in an exile, doesn't he? That he can be with them in Babylon, he can be with them in Assyria, he can be with them in Egypt, he can be with them in places beyond Canaan. And that's what the Lord's driving home to this woman at the well and why it's important when we understand who God is as being a spirit. That it's, it's not us in the sense of figuring out how to encounter God or going through the proper protocols and our own works and our own manipulations to encounter God. It's understanding that God is in the midst of us, walking with us, that we are those who are united to Christ and joined to him, that he is a spirit, he is powerful, he is a God who is almighty and not a God who is distant and estranged from his people. And that's what the Lord wants her to understand. Yeah, the, 
the redemption goes out from Jerusalem in the sense that this is where the prophets were, this is where the tradition is, but it doesn't mean that Samaritans are outside of this kingdom. But going on then, as we consider the nature of the Lord being also simple. So we know he's a spirit. He's one who is distinct from this creation, one who walks in the midst of us, a one who joins us to him, a God who dwells in us, and a God who dwells outside of us, etc. When we use this language of God being simple, and again, I, I grant it's not so obvious in terms of this text, but the nature of God being simple is not saying God is simple in the sense of intelligence, that he's low intelligence. It's not saying God is simple in the sense that we can easily understand him. I mean, I think the more and more, uh, at least for myself, the more and more I, I think about the Trinity or the more and more I think about Christ taking on the flesh, the more I, I just marvel and, and the more I wonder at, at who God is and, and who I am as a creature and you know, why, why does God even reveal these things to us? Why, why does God convict us of, of sin? Why does God even convict us of needing Christ? Right? So it's not simple in the sense that God's easy to understand. I'd argue as we grow into Christian life, we see more and more just the, the glory, majesty, awesomeness of God that's beyond our comprehension. But what it means when God is simple is it means God doesn't need to sleep. God doesn't need to eat. God doesn't need to heal. God doesn't get wounded. He's not mechanical. He doesn't need to be greased. He doesn't need his oil changed. There's nothing about him that's fragile or going to break. And so the, the assurance of that, we may say, well, why does that matter? Well, it means God is always ruling. God is always sovereign enough, powerful enough to carry out his will. He doesn't lose sight of things. He doesn't drop the ball. He's not forgetful. He doesn't have bad days where he's off his game because he's too tired and didn't get a good night's rest. Uh, this is one of those things where, again, we, we marvel at, at this reality of who God is, how he can always be from all eternity, continue to be, how he can be outside of time and also work in the context of time, right? It's because of who God is as a being who is, continues to be, that these things are certain. And so when we go back to our narrative, and we think about the Samaritans and their worship, and this woman looking to worshiping what I guess they don't know, as Christ says. And so it seems probably some sort of a blended type worship, as I mentioned, kind of looking to a Messiah, not really understanding a Messiah, kind of looking to God, but not really knowing God. But with her affirmation of who Christ is, tracking what he says, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So there's there's an affirmation that she can look to a Christ, she can look to a Messiah. But there's still not really an understanding of who the Messiah is, is there in this? That, that basically the, the, Messiah's, the, the Messiah is a really good rabbi, really good teacher. 
He's going to take the Old Testament. He's going to explain it to us. We're going to understand the Old Testament. He's going to teach us great things. But there's not a real connection of understanding that it's not just Christ teaches, which Christ certainly does. I'm not going to minimize that. But Christ is our Redeemer. He's the one who lays down his life to bring about the ultimate redemption that is promised. He confirms the promises of God. If, if God merely asserts something and never brings it to pass, well, then we're, we're serving a fraud. He's not a true God. Now, I'm not saying that to mock God because God brings it to pass. This is why we know it's true. This is a, a standard for a prophet. That what he says must come to pass. If it doesn't come to pass, no need to fear that man. But when it comes to pass, you know that this man is called of God. This is what Moses told the Israelites. And so it is with the Messiah. He has to bring about redemption. Not just teach us, but establish redemption. Now you think about this woman. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. Rabbis wouldn't talk to women. He's already taken water from her, something else a rabbi would not do. So he's already starting to teach, isn't he? He's already teaching that it's not the things outside that defile us, but it's who we are. It's understanding who we are as, as human beings who are unworthy of redemption in and of ourselves. And so you would think that as Christ has laid out all of her dirty laundry, you know, calling to attention, she's not a, a respectable woman for whatever reason. She may be a bit of victim of society or maybe she's been cast off by a series of men. Whatever the case with her uh, interacting with Christ, she's also taking some pretty big chances culturally because she doesn't fully know Christ's intention either, does she? And so she's opening herself up to uh, potentially uh, falling into something that maybe she shouldn't fall into. Whenever the case as she interacts with Christ. Notice what Christ says, knowing full well who this woman is in verse 26. I who speak to you am he. And so Christ is identifying himself as the Messiah. Now when we look at this in terms of uh, the Greek and, and what he's saying, if we literally translate this, we almost sound like cavemen. So literal translation is, I am who speaks to you, right? So for us, we hear that and say, I, I don't even know what that means. But when you put it the way John writes it in the original language, this is so profound. This is a woman who's an outcast, a woman who's not worthy of Christ's affection. He has already identified who she is as a sinful, defiled person where even women from the community will not come out to the well with her and Christ identifies himself as I am who speaks to you. Now, if you're familiar with the Exodus story, when Moses stands before the burning bush and the angel of the Lord is there, Moses said, well, who am I going to tell them that sent me? Who am I going to say? Right? Moses doesn't want to go back. He's murdered an Egyptian. He's figured out a way to eke out a living. He plans on just wandering in the wilderness, eking out a living as a shepherd, and avoiding Egypt because he likes his head attached to his neck. He doesn't want to go back there. And the Lord says, tell them I am sent you. An identification of Yahweh, the God who continues to be. A God who is not created, 
A God who does not need a creation to have an identity, but a God who stands above his people, carrying out his redemptive promises. In John's Gospel, this identity of I am is significant. Because as we go through the I am statements, which many of you are probably familiar, we think of John 4, verse 26, where we have a declaration of Christ as the one who owns the name of the great I am, right here, right? The identity, the statement here. We have 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life, the one who uh, is the, the, the true nourishment, the true manna, the, the true substance of the Lord's promise. And this is scattered throughout John 6. Eight, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Think about that declaration. I am the light of the world, the one who truly brings light and enlightenment, uh, calling people who are in darkness to see the light. We have in John 10, 11, and 14, what a wonderful statement. I am the good shepherd. I mean, think about that statement. We read from Ezekiel 34 this morning. Here, Christ, the good shepherd, I am the embodiment of God. I am the one who comes and gathers my people. I am the one who gathers them together from the nations. We have in 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who truly overcomes death. 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. In other words, the way to come to the Lord is only in Christ. John 15, 1 and 5, I am the vine. Grafting in the branches where you have the, some of the Israelites and you have the Gentile branches being grafted in, finding their life in Christ. Now the significance of this I am is Christ is saying what the Exodus modeled and truly showed a, redempt, a redemption of God. I mean, what, what a picture. People enslaved 400 years, a superpower, oppressing the Lord's people, mocking God in the sense that we're stronger than this God of the Israelites. Who is this God? And then the Lord all of a sudden delivering his people, showing his mighty hand, delivering them through the sea. Another water event is mentioned here of the true living water passing through death, emerging unto life. That wonderful picture. And, and you have there that picture of being removed from slavery to now being those who are possessed and owned by the living God, walking in his power. That wonderful picture. Now Christ is saying he is the ultimate embodiment and presentation of this redemptive purpose of God. Who shall I say sent me, Moses says. I am. Christ is sitting here with this woman who has defiled herself, not worthy of cultural attention, even of Samaritans. And Christ reveals to her what? I am the great I am. I am the Messiah. I am the one who secures life. I am the one who is sovereign enough to do this. So you can understand how this woman then runs to the community and says, see this prophet who told me all the things I've done. In other words, the, the community knows who she is. And she's saying, and, and this guy, he told me everything, and yet he still interacted with me. And, and he still laid out to me the, the very hope of the Exodus, not only as a Samaritan and as a woman, but as a person who has compromised who she is culturally. 
Come, see this man, interact with him. And so you can understand the beauty of this redemption, can't you? And we say, well, then how does this show that God is ultimately simple? Well, God is a great I am. He wasn't created. He wasn't fatigued. Uh, he wasn't ignoring his people, as we can think back to this statement of the I am when he reveals to Moses what? I've heard the cries of my people. In other words, generation after generation, I have heard the cries of my people. But he already predicted to, to Abram that they're going to be enslaved for 400 some years. So God is not one who's, who's dis distant in the sense that he doesn't care. I mean, yes, he's distinct from us. But not distance in the sense that he's aloof, uncaring, indifferent as to what happens to his people. And so he's sovereign enough to carry out his will because he doesn't get fatigued. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't break down. He doesn't need to be rebuilt. He, he doesn't have a, a service lifespan. God is. He continues to be a God who truly just exists and carries out his redemptive purpose because of who he is as God. And what a wonderful story of such a person who receives this revelation and this redemption, this call, this invitation to turn and to find life in Christ. And for her to truly, as we see the fruit of it, recognize truly that life is only in Christ, that truly having the living water, regeneration, life in Christ is where one truly finds this life. What a wonderful, wonderful declaration we find here. And so what is meant by this language in the Belgic Confession where we started? What, what is meant by saying God is simple in spirit? What, what, what does it mean when we can't fully comprehend God, but yet we say that he's simple and he's spirit. Well, the language reminds us and is intended really to, to put us in awe of God. Even though we, we may not be tempted to do so, so we think simple, it's not always complimentary in our culture. But it means that God just is. He doesn't need repairs. He doesn't fall asleep on the job. He doesn't get fatigued. He doesn't get tired. Literally, now he might use anthropomorphic language when he's tired of his people and what they're doing, but he's not tired in the sense that he needs to take a nap or tired that he needs to sleep. He doesn't need food. There's nothing mechanical or complex about him. He is a God who is. When he's a God who is spirit, he's a God who is almighty, distinct from this creation, which again is, is something that I always marvel at when we think about how man responded to God in the creation telling God to cast off we don't want you we, we don't desire you we, we want to live on our own I always wonder you know what why doesn't God just give us what we want and just let the creation spiral out of control and yet as God is spirit as he is distinct from the creation he continues to maintain the creation whether the creatures affirm it, value it, thank him, appreciate it. So we find in Job that even Job himself doesn't appreciate all the things that God does behind the scenes and how many things we take for granted in terms of what God orchestrates and what he does 
behind the scenes. Because God is spirit as he is distinct, as he is simple, he continues to do these things. And so let us then proceed in the confidence of who Christ is. And let us not come to this story saying, wow, Christ can even redeem this woman. The, the point of the story really is for us to understand we are just like this woman, unworthy of Christ's affection, unworthy of his redemption, unworthy of the life we have in Christ. But by the grace of God, as we hear in John 3, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we respond to this glorious call by faith. Let us then continue to walk in this faith, seeking to honor our Lord as his redeemed people, assembling before the God who is, the God who is sovereign enough and powerful enough to accomplish his will. Let us then seek to serve him as his redeemed. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, we would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.